Well, good morning. Welcome to LifePoint today. I'm so glad to see you. And uh, it's been a few weeks since we uh, were in Acts together. If you're new among us today, we're in a series that, uh, as you can see, in three different places. (laughs) It's titled, Turning the World Upside Down. We're we're working through the New Testament book called The Acts of the Apostles. Um, It's really a, a history of the work of God in unfolding and expanding, exploding really, the the uh, the church during the first century, first 35 to 40 years of that uh, of that early church. Before we get back into that, um, I just want to let you know that uh, you probably saw the slide on the screen regarding Mother's Day, and we have some invitation cards at the back if you'd like to grab one of those. Um, it says Mother's Day on one side, Father's Day on the other. Um, those dates are coming, Just uh, Mother's Day is just a few weeks away. And uh, so we hope that you would invite your mom or invite some of the mothers in your life, and then in June to invite your father or the other fathers in your life. also want to uh, mention that uh, on Easter Sunday, we gave away a book called Is Easter Unbelievable? It's just a tremendous little book. And uh, we have a number of them left at the back. If you weren't here last week and would like to have one of those, I would really recommend it to your reading. Well, uh, just to kind of catch us up uh, on where we've been since it's been three weeks, uh, just a reminder that Paul's returning from his third missionary journey, which had, again, taken him up through Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, across the Aegean Sea into Macedonia, southward to Achaia, to cities like uh, Athens and Corinth, what we think of as today as the nation of Greece. And uh, Paul's traveling with seven Gentile converts who who accompanying... (laughs) I can't even speak today... Who, who are accompanying him. They stop in Caesarea on their homeward journey. Caesarea is in Israel. It's on the, the Mediterranean coast. Um, and they, they stay there in the home of Philip the Evangelist. Now, while they were there, this strange thing happened. This guy named Agabus came down from Jerusalem to the home of Philip. Agabus happened to be a prophet, And he prophesied that when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, he would be bound, he would be handed over to the Gentiles and imprisoned, and uh, which which only reinforced what what apparently the Spirit had been saying to Paul all along the way. Paul's friends were urging him not to go to Jerusalem, but uh, Paul was adamant. He knew that uh, in spite of what the Spirit was telling him, and now Agabus, the Spirit through Agabus, was was again telling him that uh, Jerusalem needed to be his destination. And so he went, and they went with him. Upon arrival in Jerusalem, Paul went and met with the elders of the Jerusalem church. As you may recall, his agenda for this meeting was twofold. First, to deliver to the church leadership there in Jerusalem the very generous financial gift for famine relief that he had collected from the Gentile churches in Asia, Macedonia, and Achaia, and then secondly, to report to these Jewish leaders all the things that God had been doing uh, through him and his associates among the Gentiles. And as you may also recall, the gift and the report combined together became an occasion for genuine praise to God among those elders. James, the brother of Jesus, and the, the head elder, the, the big kahuna of the church in Jerusalem, also affirmed Paul. Uh, you know, that's, that's great, Paul. We're, we're rejoicing with you. But he, he quickly drew Paul's attention to the work of God also among the Jews in Jerusalem and throughout Judea to the thousands of Jews in Judea uh, who also had believed and were coming to faith in, in Jesus as Messiah. With that came a warning to Paul that that many who had heard, who had uh, apparently accepted as true that Paul had been teaching the Jews, 
who were dispersed out through the, among the Gentile nations, that they should forsake Moses, that they should not circumcise their children, that they should abandon Jewish customs. In other words, they had heard and believed that having, that Paul was teaching that having trusted in Christ as Messiah, that, uh, these Jewish, or these, um, yeah, Jewish believers should cease being Jewish and live like Gentiles. And that, that was, of course, not true at all. And the elders in Jerusalem understood that it was not true. So they proposed that he do something visible that would demonstrate to the, the Jewish community uh, that he remained an observant Jew and and so reassure them and regain their favor. So they agreed together that Paul should personally pay the temple fees for four men from among the disciples in Jerusalem who were engaging in a Nazarite vow. Paying those fees for someone other than yourself was considered a profoundly pious and very generous thing to do. But in order to do that, Paul himself, having been on the road for a considerable amount of time and therefore ritually impure, would have to undergo a seven-day ritual process of purification in order to even participate in this fulfillment of these four men's vows. Um, So as we saw three weeks ago, it was when Paul was nearing the completion of that seven-day process of purification that he happened to be in the temple courts, and he was recognized by some of the Jews, very possibly Jews visiting from Ephesus or some other uh, location in Asia or even in Macedonia or Achaia. These men grabbed him and began shouting to the crowd, making specific accusations against him. Their first accusation is recorded in chapter 21, verses 27 to 28. We read there, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. What an accusation. He's teaching everyone everywhere against the people, against the Jewish people, and against the law, the law of Moses, and this place, the temple. How wrong they were, and how ironic that this should be the charge brought against him at a time when he himself was undergoing purification as a Jew in order to avoid defiling the temple. The second accusation was that Paul had defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile into the inner court of the temple. So verses 28 and 29, Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. They supposed. (laughs) Their accusation was based on nothing more than a supposition or or more more accurately a a presumption. They had seen Trophimus with Paul in the city and presumed, possibly because of their preconceived bias, they presumed that he had brought him also into the temple. You know, it really is true that that old expression that a lie will travel around the world before the truth has time to, um, to lace its shoes. Their accusation must have been more specifically that Paul had brought Trophimus, this Gentile, not only into the temple courts, but actually past the separating wall of the court of the Gentiles and into the court of the Jews, where where no Gentile was allowed to go on pains of death. The Jewish historian Josephus described the wall that separated the court of the Gentiles, the outer court of the Gentiles, from the inner courts that were that were reserved for Jews alone as, quote, a stone balustrade, three cubits, or four and a half to five feet high, and of excellent workmanship. In this, 
At regular intervals stood slabs giving warning, some in Greek, others in Latin characters, of the law of purification, to wit that no foreigner was permitted to enter the holy place, for so the second enclosure of the temple was called. One of those Greek signs that was found by, or was found by archaeologists in 1871, another couple of fragments were found in 1935, the complete notice that they found on that um, slab was, no foreigner is to enter within the balustrade an embankment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which follows. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which follows. In other words, get off my lawn, right? And stay off. <clears throat> but very serious. I've had opportunity over the years to see some creative sayings on no trespassing signs and... Um, not because, you know, I'm a trespasser, but, but, but um, well, most of the time anyway. But, but I've, I've collected some of these over time. Here's actually my, my classic favorite play on words of all. It, it, it says simply, trespassers will be violated. <laughs> I love that. There, there are some that involve the threat of being on the wrong end of a gun. For example, warning, due to the rising cost of ammunition... We are no longer able to offer a complimentary warning shot. <laughs> or private property, if you can read this, you are in range. Or as you trespass, please pause to announce the weapon and caliber with which you prefer to be shot. We aim to please. <laughs> and it gets worse than that. Here's another one. No trespassing. Violators will be shot. Survivors will be shot again. And then uh, this one involves machinery. No trespassing. I own firearms and a backhoe. <laughs> then no trespassing. We're running out of places to hide the bodies. And then not surprisingly, there are some that raise other ominous threats. For example, trespassers are welcome. Dog food is getting expensive. <laughs> or no trespassing. Forget the dog. Beware of the wife. Uh, and then, and then there's this one that I, as a, a kind of a wannabe gardener, particularly appreciate. It says, "No trespassing. Violators will be composted." <laughs> and finally, there's there's also a class of warnings that are decidedly theological in nature. Here are a few: prayer is the best way to meet God. Trespassing is the fastest. Or no trespassing. Is there life after death? Want to find out? And finally, we believe in God and guns. Trespass, and you will meet them both. So, so the warning signs in the temple, by the way, I won't quit my day job. The, the, the warning signs in the temple might be seen as, as somewhat humorous if they weren't so deadly serious. There, there was an actual stated death penalty for Gentiles who dared breach that wall even with their little toe. Some believe that Paul was metaphorically alluding to this barrier between the court of the Gentiles and the, the inner courts when he wrote to the Ephesians regarding the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles having been abolished by Christ. But what followed the shouted accusations was, in Luke's words, that all the city was stirred up. Uh, a, a riot ensued. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, which I'm take to mean that they dragged him out of the court of the Jews and into the outer court of the Gentiles. The temple police, it says, shut the gates to the inner courts, perhaps in part in order to prevent the violence from spilling into the holy place. And as the crowds came running, they were literally, just imagine this, trying to beat and kill Paul. So Paul, Paul's by himself among a crowd of hundreds, maybe thousands, and they're all trying to kill him. They intended to take his life. Uh, the Roman tribune received a word that, that a riot was erupting in the temple, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And by the way, a Roman tribune is not an Italian newspaper. Instead, at, at least in this case, the Roman tribune was, was a commanding officer over 10 centurions and the, the thousand troops under them. Today, a, a tribune probably 
uh, translates roughly to a lieutenant general. Uh, that's, that's kind of the, the level uh, or the rank that he occupied. This particular tribune was probably the commander of the entire Roman cohort in Jerusalem. So he was the guy. And uh, responding to the crisis in the temple, he, he took some soldiers, it says some, and also some centurions, and ran, ran down to them. Well, what does that mean, ran down? Well, at the northwest corner uh, of the Temple Mount stood what was called the, the Fortress Antonia, and and that housed the the entire Roman cohort that was assigned to Jerusalem, and and from there was actually four towers um, from which you could look down into the temple courts. When the crowd saw the the Romans approaching, uh, their assault on Paul. Stopped. The, the tribune placed Paul under arrest. He ordered him to be bound with two chains. And by that, the prophecy of Agabus was fulfilled. But, but by arresting Paul, it's clear that this Roman commander also rescued him. The arrest was a rescue. The, the frenzied crowd still shouting. The tribune wanted to question Paul. It was impossible in those chaotic circumstances to do that. So he ordered that Paul be brought into the barracks. And along the way, the soldiers literally, it says, had to carry Paul to protect him. I kind of picture them maybe crowd surfing kind of mode, you know, carrying him over their heads. Because um, the, the crowd was still intent on doing him harm, if not actually getting the opportunity to kill him. And these people began to cry out, away with him, away with him. When else have we heard similar language from a crowd just recently, away with him. Well, that's all review because verse 37 is where in the midst of the crisis and chaos, we're picking up the story this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles that's at the back on the table, uh, this, you'll, you'll find it at the bottom of page 875. I'm not going to have you stand and read this this morning because this is a long passage. But join me at verse 37. Paul makes a remarkable request. There's a, a respectfulness in his request. It's combined with a tone, I think, of assertiveness. Uh, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, and, and by the way, if you can picture this, you probably can't, but maybe you've seen a picture of the Fortress Antonia. It was an imposing structure right there at the, the corner of the Temple Mount. <clears throat> But it had steps that, that came down actually into the temple. So Paul's probably standing on those steps. Uh, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of, of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you. Permit me to speak to the people. In chapter 3, verse 26, we, we learn the name of the tribune. It was Claudius Lysias or Lucius. He, he was surprised that his prisoner spoke Greek because he assumed that in arresting Paul, he had actually apprehended a, a notorious Egyptian terrorist. Um, and here we're given just a little window on, the, on some of the history of, of that time. The terrorist that he had in mind uh, was described again by the Jewish historian Josephus as an Egyptian false prophet who about three years earlier had gotten together 30,000 men. And I think Josephus was probably prone to a little exaggeration since the tribune said there were only 4,000. But he had led these men to the Mount of Olives, and promised them that the walls of Jerusalem would fall flat at his command, and and then that they would be able to uh, break into the city and overpower the Romans. And I'm not sure, but he may have added that he had a bridge in Brooklyn he could sell them. But but Felix, who was the governor, not the cat, intervened and. Uh, and his troops either killed or captured or ran off all 4,000 of these would-be 
assassins. The ringleader had vanished, and for a reason we do not know, the tribune thought that Paul was that man. So Paul clarifies his identity. He he emphasizes his citizenship in the city of Tarsus. You, You may recall that we saw earlier in this series that Paul's hometown of Tarsus was the first city, that is the capital of the Roman province of Cilicia. It was a very wealthy city. It was distinguished as, as an intellectual center, one of the great university cities of the Roman world. So Paul respectfully, but again assertively, requested the opportunity to speak to the people. And when that request was granted, he began to offer his defense. And he did that by recounting, first of all, his pedigree and his past. Verse 40, And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, And I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Now, I find it remarkable, maybe you do too, that that we find Paul addressing um, these people with respect, um, even with affection. Uh, These are the same people who, who just moments before had assaulted him, intending to kill him, uh, So Paul must have been feeling pretty roughed up as he began to address these men. Notice, first of all, that Luke tells us Paul addressed them in the Hebrew language. And the Greek text says more specifically that he addressed them in the Hebrew dialect. And that expression is a reference to the language that we know as Aramaic, the everyday language of Jews in that day. Jesus himself spoke Aramaic. Luke adds that addressing them in their own dialect had the further effect then of of kind of quieting the crowd and gaining their full attention. Oh, he speaks our language. Who is this guy? And notice also that that he addresses them as family. Uh, In verse 1 of chapter 22, he calls them brothers and fathers. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had just been beat up by a crowd, I, I can imagine some other terminology I may have been justified in using right at that moment, Right? Um, given what had just transpired. But, but instead, he, he identifies with them. He expresses his family connection with them, brothers and fathers. And, it, and it's difficult, I think, to comprehend the incredible depth of Paul's affection, the incredible depth of his passion for his people, the Jews. In his letter to the church in Rome, chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, you might remember this, he expressed his anguish over their spiritually lost condition. When he said, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, let me me ask you this morning, when was the last time that you acknowledged a willingness to be eternally damned to hell forever if only someone you loved would put their faith in Christ and live eternally with him. And that was Paul's heart, his passion. It was his pain. He continued on describing first his Jewish pedigree, a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia. That that was his hometown. Brought up, literally, the word there is nourished in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of the great Gamaliel. Some people pronounce that name differently, Gamaliel, um, considered the most eminent teacher of his time, the greatest of the Pharisees. To, to have been admitted as a student, a disciple of Gamaliel, was considered an honor and a privilege of the highest order. If you can imagine, 
you know, when at the time that you did or maybe still do apply to university, apply to college, <clears throat> the one that, that, that that's the farthest out of reach in your mind, that no, that, that university would never admit the likes of me. That's it. That was being admitted to, to study under Gamaliel. So Paul goes on, he says, educated according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Paul became a Pharisee as Gamaliel was, the, the, again, the most eminent of the Pharisees. Paul, in another place, describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Jew of Jews. Paul was, was literally, and we don't often think about this, Paul was literally one of the most educated men of his day, hands down. Um, certainly one of the most educated in all of Judaism. So Paul says, I was zealous for God, as all of you are this day. And notice that he acknowledges in that statement their mistaken attempt to kill him as evidence of their own spiritual passion, their own spiritual zeal. And, and then he identifies with them further by acknowledging that it was his own zeal for God that led him to terrorize and kill the followers of Jesus. The movement was known simply in those days as the way. And Paul says, I was binding and delivering both men and women to prison. And not only that, but he called upon the high priest and the, and the whole council of elders as witnesses to the fact because in doing these things, he had acted with their express permission and under their authority. And I think you'll agree that had Paul stopped here at the end of verse 5 of chapter 22, the crowd would have been satisfied. They liked that part of the story. Uh, he'd, have, he'd have won them over. He, they might even have given him a standing ovation if he'd stopped right there. But he didn't. He didn't stop there. Instead, he began to narrate the circumstances of his own encounter with the risen Christ. This is the second of three accounts of Paul's conversion experience in the book of Acts. The first was narrated by Luke in chapter 9. <clears throat> the third still lies ahead of us in chapter 26, where Paul will stand and make his case before Herod Agrippa. In each retelling, the, the outline and the content is, is precisely the same. But Paul crafts his words to fit his audience. You'll also find a, a brief uh, outline of that in First Timothy chapter 1. And I think there's a great deal we can learn from Paul about sharing our own faith with all kinds of people because he was constantly assessing how he could creatively leverage, as it were, his circumstances, no matter how extreme they may have been, no matter how dire, uh, to share the gospel. It seems regardless of the, the nature or, or the intensity of the trials that, that Paul faced, uh, his mind was just always laser-focused at all times on on fulfilling his calling to preach Christ, laser-focused on how he could turn a conversation to an opportunity to share the gospel. I'm going to read verses 6 through 16 in just a moment, and then I'm going to invite you to examine with me some of the specific words that, that Paul used in this section, and, and really the subtle connections, or, or not so subtle, I suppose, depending on who the listener is. Uh, to express some radical messages. So uh, this is kind of the mother load of the, of the overall passage, verses 6 through 16. They're just loaded with theological significance. So let's, let's begin with verses 6 through 10. He says, as I was on my way, and again, now he's, he's recounting his conversion experience, his encounter with Christ. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You notice that? Saul thought he was persecuting the church. Jesus said, no, 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 no. You're persecuting me. And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed 
for you to do. And notice with me the specificity with which Paul recounts his encounter with Jesus. He's on his way to Damascus, a city that still exists and is very much in the news every day of late. He was drawing near that city, and it was about noon. Paul wants them to know that his witness is grounded in space and time. Not once upon a time, or in a galaxy far, far away, but a light from heaven suddenly shone around him. And I like to think that it knocked him off his horse. There's no mention of a horse. I just like that imagery. But the description is is similar, isn't it, to, to Luke's description of the experience of those shepherds outside of Bethlehem on the night that Jesus was born. It says that on that occasion that the glory they saw was not the glory of the angel that shone around about them, but it was the glory of the Lord being reflected by the angel. On this occasion, the light from heaven that shone around Saul, who later began using his other name, Paul, was the glory of the Lord himself. It was the direct glory of the Lord. You know, I I don't need to retell every aspect of the story. It's written with simplicity and clarity. You can read it for yourself. But I I would simply call your attention to the title by which Paul responded to the voice that he heard, asking Saul why he's persecuting him, identifying himself as Jesus of Nazareth, whom Saul was persecuting. Three times in his response, he uses the title Lord. The Greek word on each of those three is the word kurios. It's also translated sir and master. It's an everyday word, actually. Twice in verses 8 and 10, we could we could translate the word Lord in that simple manner that, that Paul was saying, who are you, sir? But in the latter part of verse 10, Paul adds the definite article. Calls Jesus ho kurios, or the Lord. And, and, and the moment that the definite article is added and Lord becomes the Lord, the title paralyzes, <laughs> parallels the one the Jews used to refer to Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And Paul is asserting in the hearing of these Jews in the temple courts somewhat unassumingly, but unmistakably, that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is eternal God. Now blind, he's he's led by the hand into the city of Damascus. And in verses 11 to 16, Paul recounts the ministry of Ananias, a devout Jew with a good reputation in the Jewish community in Damascus, also a believer in Messiah Jesus, who having been called by God, came to him, and laid his hands on him so that he received back his sight. At verses 14 to 15, Ananias prophesies over Paul. And and here again, I want you to hear the language he uses. He says, first of all, the God of our fathers appointed you. The God of our fathers appointed you. The God of whose fathers? The God of the fathers of the Hebrew people. Who were those fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who is that God? Yahweh, the Lord. Well, what did the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appoint Saul to do? First, to see the righteous one, to have a personal encounter with him, he says. And again, notice the definite article. It's not any righteous Jew. There are several Jews in the Bible that are referred to as righteous men, righteous women. It's not any righteous Jew. It's the righteous one. In the Old Testament, the righteous one is a a title first for God himself, and secondly then, for Messiah. For example, in the prophet Isaiah's description of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53.11, which we actually considered together last week, we read these words referring to, Messiah, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, 
shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So Ananias is saying that God's suffering servant, his righteous one, is none other than Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah, the Christ. And secondly, Ananias says that the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appointed you to hear a word from the mouth of Messiah, the righteous one. So here's confirmation to Saul. Remember, this is at his conversion. He's still reeling from the whole experience. Here's confirmation to Saul that his experience on the road to Damascus was actually real. Did I just have a hallucination? Did I have a stroke? Did I, you know, did did something, (laughs) did I go crazy? No. Here's confirmation that, that it was real, that the voice that he heard was, in fact, the voice of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And third, Ananias says that God's greater purpose in Saul having seen the righteous one, the risen Jesus, having heard a word from his mouth, was that he would be a witness of what he had seen and heard. There was a larger purpose. And finally, Ananias added, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So Paul concludes this section of his defense by demonstrating that he had understood that his faith, newly altered faith, was to be clearly expressed in baptism. So what's baptism? It's a public, personal, radical identification with Jesus Christ as Lord. A public confession of Jesus Christ as one's Savior. It's a a symbolic portrayal of, of dying with Christ, of being buried with him, and then being raised to a new life. It's not baptism that washes away our sin. Water alone can never do that. It's, it's the blood of Christ shed on the cross for us. And, and, and it is instead, as Ananias said, when we call on the name of the Lord that our sins are forgiven, that, that they're washed away. The promise of God is that he'll never bring them up again or use them against us. Amen? So if you've personally trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, but have not yet been baptized, then Ananias' words are for you as well. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. And so I hope that that if that describes you, and you're, you're a believer, but you haven't been baptized yet, that you might take us up on the invitation to be baptized on May 7th. In verses 17 to 21, then, Paul recounts his vision and his commission. When I had returned to Jerusalem, now again, he's recounting his conversion experience, and now this is what follows. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, in the temple, I was praying in the temple. I'm a Jew, remember me? I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. In other words, Lord, they know I'm a Jew. They know my heart. They know my intent. And he, that is God, said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, reviewing Paul's defense that day, what has he said? First, that he was by birth, by education, by conviction, by demonstration of his own passion for God, a faithful Jew. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was his God. He had, he had not forsaken his faith. He had not ventured into apostasy or false doctrine. He had adhered steadfastly to biblical faith, his ancestral faith. Secondly, he had declared unequivocally that Jesus of Nazareth is the risen Lord, God's righteous one, the Messiah of Israel, eternal God. Third, he had asserted that those features of his faith, which had been altered, 
specifically his acknowledgement of Jesus as Messiah and his calling to evangelize the Gentiles were not his own inventions. Instead, they had been directly revealed to him from heaven. He wanted them to see, he wanted them to understand that, that nothing but a divine intervention could have brought about such a radical transformation in his life. So in verses 22 to 29, we see two responses. The response of the Jews, which was more rioting, and the response of the Romans that brought at least some temporary relief. Verse 22 begins, up to this word, they listened to him. Isn't that interesting? That, that after all he had said, all the, all the claims that he had made about who Jesus is, and, and, and God's speaking to him, up, up until the very last thing, they listened to him. What, what word was it? It, it? it was what he said in verse 21. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. You see, that was it. That was kind of the final straw. The idea that God's grace and goodness uh, has extended to the Gentiles was just a just one toke over the line, sweet Jesus, right? I mean, there it was. That's what tipped the scales, the idea that even Gentiles might become part of God's family. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Calling for his death. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, isn't that, that's kind of hilarious, isn't it? I mean... <laughs> I guess it's a, a time-honored expression in the ancient uh, world, throwing off their cloaks and fleeing dust into the air. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. You might be saying to yourself, I thought you said the Romans brought, brought Paul some relief. Flogging doesn't sound like relief to me. And of, and of course, you'd be right in that. But, but it seems to be a time-honored strategy, Right? seems like every generation has had some strategy, some approach that involves some level of torture for extracting truth from a prisoner. Now, flogging, also known as scourging, was one of the most inhumane, most life-threatening forms of torture ever invented. Uh, not unusual for a prisoner to die from the wounds sustained in a flogging. If you saw the Passion of Christ, you saw a graphic portrayal of that. But let's read on. When they had stretched him out for the whips. I don't know what that looked like. Maybe like that. So he couldn't defend himself. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Clear answer? Absolutely no. Not at all. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Speaking of his own citizenship, Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him, that is, those who were about to beat him to within an inch of his life, withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. There were severe punishments for having done that to a Roman citizen. See, Paul was very willing to suffer for the cause of Christ, wasn't he? I mean, we've seen that over and over again in our study thus far through the Acts of the Apostles. We, we know that he, he, he submitted to that quite frequently. But it was also true that Paul was not willing to suffer needlessly. And so he played his Roman citizenship card here and was delivered from flogging. We'll see next week that he remained in prison, however, and eventually bought himself a ticket to Rome, which was where he had been longing to go anyway. Well, as we close this morning, I want you to invite you to think with me about what 
a phrase that's found in, in Revelation 12, the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony, the word of your testimony. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, the Apostle John describes a scene that he saw in a vision of heaven. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. See, I I believe that, that this description applies to people who come to faith in Christ during the seven years that the Bible calls the tribulation period. I think that's who's being discussed at this point in Revelation. Um, The tribulation period will follow the rapture of the church from the earth. Um, But the principle expressed in verse 11 applies, I think, in every era. It applies today. It's stated in the past tense, although it describes a future time. It says that they overcame Satan They conquered him by three things. First of all, they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, first and most importantly. See, when you trust in Christ and and the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ is applied to your life, Satan no longer has any power over you. You've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. You belong to him. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus. You're justified by faith. You have peace with God. But notice you you conquer Satan on the basis of something that someone else did for you. You conquer Satan because Christ has conquered him already. And you enter into that blessing when you put your faith in, in what Christ accomplished for you at the cross. Secondly, they conquered him by the word of their testimony. When you and I are willing to declare publicly, when we're willing to declare unashamedly that that we've trusted in Christ alone for our salvation, Satan flees from us, the Bible says. He runs. There's power in your testimony. It's nearly impossible, isn't it, to refute one's personal Experience, But as you are confessing your faith in Christ, what's added to that is the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul shared that day in the temple courts. Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, chapter 10, verses 8 to 10 of Romans, that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Third, they conquered him because they weren't so in love with their earthly lives that they were unwilling to face death for the sake of Christ. So let me ask you, are are you willing to suffer and, and maybe even to die for the name of Jesus? Tough question. You see, I, I believe that the day is coming quickly when that question will become very real for many of us here today. It, it's going to become live agenda in short order. Or for our children, perhaps our grandchildren. And if you and I don't get used to identifying publicly with Jesus now when things are relatively easy for us, The reality is that we won't identify with him when circumstances turn against us either. I want to close with this from the Apostle Peter because I think it, first of all, reflects Paul's posture and his witness that day in the temple in Jerusalem. But it's also essential for us if we wish to be effective, credible witnesses for Jesus today. So many these days are turning to I think in frustration over the way the world is, turning to an abrasive, disrespectful approach to relationships with unbelievers around us. Uh, We need to avoid that attitude. We need to persist in love 
in gentleness and respect and kindness toward those uh, who oppose us as Jesus did and as Paul did. First Peter three thirteen to 17. Now, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Rhetorical question. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile, notice that when you are slandered, not if, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. These are hard lessons for us to learn. I include myself in that. But they are indispensable to our witness for Christ in this world. So may the Spirit of God work these things in us so that when we have opportunity to share the word of our testimony, we're able to deliver it genuinely and with grace and with the love of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that a story that uh, events that, that, that occurred 2,000 years ago still resonate in our lives today, still speak powerfully into our own experience, our own attitudes, our own motivations, our own faith. And Lord, I just pray for us as a church, for us as individuals, for our witness in our community among those that you allow us to, to interact with. I pray, Lord, this morning for uh, those for whom each of us are praying in our lives that they would come to faith in Christ. We, I pray, Lord, that you would fulfill that prayer. Uh, in your time and in your way, but Lord, I pray that you would fulfill it. I pray that each of these on whom we have set our hearts would come to faith in you. And Lord, help us to see everyday opportunities and to leverage those intelligently and, and lovingly to communicate the gospel creatively, lovingly, kindly, respectfully. By your Holy Spirit, may these things be true in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.